You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the publisher of the world's leading newspaper about snow, The Flake News, but in my spare time, I'm just a reporter. Eric, that was terrible. And you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power, change, and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chairs, there are three people, Andrew Rossi, Adam McGill, and Brian Stelter, who directed and produced the new documentary for HBO called After Truth, Disinformation, and the Cost of Fake News, which is one of my favorite topics. (laughs) Andrew is the director, Adam is the co-producer, and Brian is the executive producer as well as the chief media correspondent at CNN. After Truth explains how false stories like the Pizzagate conspiracy make their way from obscure corners of the internet to mainstream outlets like Fox News or your Facebook news feed, often your Facebook news feed. And we're here in the time of coronavirus, so it's a good time to talk about it because a friend of mine just tweet, uh, just texted me about uh, searching for coronavirus on uh, Facebook and coming up with a lot of really awful stuff. Andrew, Adam, Brian, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. Thank you so for having us. Let me so start much. with that. Let's start with uh, with you, Andrew. You let me very quickly. Your last big movie was on the um, was on with David Carr and talking about the New York Times. That's right. Page One is a movie about the disruption in traditional uh, journalism. Right. And I think when we were talking with uh, other folks about the election in 2016 and how um, the conversation around truth had changed so much, we had many different approaches. First, we thought about the big lie. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, Richard Plepler and and Brian had been talking about that. Exactly, at uh, at HBO. Um, How to address the importance of facts. Mm -hmm. Um, So we looked at the anatomy of of a lie. Um, And one of the learnings we got from that was the importance of looking at hate as a way to curry favor with certain groups and make falsehoods uh, powerful. Mm -hmm. So we looked at that for a certain amount of time and then pivoted to the rise in hate looking at Charlottesville and uh, how much hate had had been rising online. Mm -hmm. And all that came together when we then focused on false news. Um, So in the film, we're looking at um, really human case studies that show how people are victims of fake news. Mm -hmm. Um, The term fake news has become so um, polarized. uh, The president is using it (laughs) in a way that it doesn't have a lot of... He's cheapening the word. He's cheapened it. Mm -hmm. And so um, James Aliphantus, who's the owner of Comet Ping Pong, Mm -hmm. um, he's a person who talks about uh, the very real impact this has had on 
Comet Ping Pong as a queer space, a safe space, um, the attacks on him as as a gay man. Mm-hmm. Um, these are things that many people don't understand about the whole Pizzagate scandal. All right, explain. Uh, uh, why don't you explain the Pizzagate? Definitely. Um, this so is Adam. Pizzagate, I think, sort of started kind of during the froth of the, you know, kind of end of the 2016 election. Um, and basically what happened was after the leak of the Podesta emails— John Podesta. You have to explain all yeah, these people. People totally. don't follow this as carefully as you do. I know. We're, we're so John Podesta worked for Hillary Clinton, was the campaign manager. He, the emails were released that were not, you know, look like the inside of a campaign, people talking with each other in negative ways. And, exactly. And, and, and then people on 4chan and, and Reddit started taking those details and constructing them into a narrative about there being basically a dungeon underneath uh, Comet Ping Pong. All right. Why, why Comet? I think one of the things about Comet is it is a safe— This is a pizza place in Washington, D.C. It's on, I think, Connecticut Avenue. It's, mm-hmm. it's, right. It's, or Connecticut. It's on Connecticut one of the things about Comet is it is a sort of safe, safe space for the queer community there. You know, they host shows for local bands. They have a, you know, are plugged into the artist community there. You know, James himself is a gay man. So I think part of the identity of that restaurant is a queer space. So unfortunately, there is a long history of kind of queerness being under attack, specifically rumors about you know, gay men in particular being pedophiles. Mm-hmm. So you get this raw, sort of unfiltered, you know, set of emails. James Alephantis is connected to John Podesta in those emails. And just based off that connection, his identity of a, as a queer man, it just is the perfect cocktail to spin up conspiracies that make it seem like there's something nefarious going on in Comet Ping Pong. All right, so you've been, Brian, you've been covering media forever. Um, and you were, in fact, in page one. I assume that's how you all met. <laughs> yes. Um, as a young reporter covering media, from talk about how this happens. Because one of right. the things you've watched is the shift where the media has tended, it's, pre, it's pre-internet, you were starting covering pre-internet, and how it's shifted in terms of where people get their information and how something like this could get some purchase. Now, rumors and gossip have been around since the beginning of time. And these kind of rumors about people have have been out there in general. It just doesn't have this much weaponization. Yeah, weaponization. I, I feel like 10 years ago it was such an innocent time mm-hmm. compared to where we are today. When when Andrew was filming uh, David Carr and Tim Marengo and, and Bruce Headlam and me and a bunch of others at the New York Times, you know, we, we were covering uh, WikiLeaks. We were covering, you know, some, some big important stories of the time. But there wasn't this conversation about mis- and disinformation, mm-hmm. right? And misinformation, I mean, if I tell you to go the wrong way down a dark alley by accident, that's misinformation. If I tell you to go down the wrong way on purpose, I think that's disinformation. It's malicious. I'm trying to hurt you. We're seeing this rise of disinformation that— Frankly, none of us were talking about on the media beat 10 mm-hmm. years ago and barely five years ago, right? Credit to Craig Silverman and, and others for in 2014 and 2015 talking about fake news, actually fake news, actually made up stories about Ebola. Craig is in the film along with you, Kara. We mm-hmm. should mention you are oh. one of the, one of the uh, subjects as well. I mean, you, you gave us great insight about Facebook and what Facebook hasn't been doing on this, on this front. Um, and I think the Pizzagate story is what ties all these threads together. It's early on in the film. There's about a 20-minute portion that I hope everybody can watch where you see James Alephant just explain what happened and what the consequences were of this insane conspiracy theory. Because, frankly, like, I had heard of Pizzagate. I think most people in the tech world have heard of Pizzagate. They know there's this crazy conspiracy theory. But I had never recognized the um, human cost Mm -hmm. until you see that guy, that crazy person with a gun, Mm -hmm. being taken down by the police. You don't realize— 
how dangerous this actually is. No, absolutely. This guy would, would happen. Explain what happened. Someone so showed up he with shows a gun up, to you know, try to save the children. There's a guy with a gun trying to save the children in the basement that aren't there, of course. Uh, and uh, James Alephantis and his there's staff have to evacuate. No, right, there's a, in fact, one of the most moving scenes of the film, I, I think, is when uh, you get taken back, uh, you get taken on a tour of the entire pizzeria so you can see for yourself. And, and that's kind of what this is about, right? When people can see the truth for the, with their own eyes, if they can actually see what real news is. Oh, Although they could say there is a secret basement. Well, like in know, Parasite, know, yeah. there was a secret basement we didn't know about, right? Yeah, it's a touche, touche. You know, and, and ultimately, I mean, I, can, show I up, can spin up a conspiracy You know, this guy is taken like, down. He gets arrested. He, he, he kind of later admitted that he had he'd gotten um, tricked into, or, or you know, he, he realized he was delusional about mm-hmm. these subjects. But also recognize the timing of this case right after the 2016 election. It was a moment where I think people looked around and said, okay, these online, um, uh, you know, smears have real-world consequences. And mm-hmm. that's the entire purpose of this film is to show you the victims and the perpetrators of made-up stories. All right. So in this case, it was also um, uh, the son of Michael Flynn had tweeted about it. Every Ugh, people yeah. were they were just making it go around. Now, one of the things before we get to how that happens, how things spin, because it just takes a second on these platforms. I want to talk about the the responsibility of these platforms and the tools that these platforms have that cause it to happen. Um, this virality, which yeah. you, you have engagement that leads to enragement, which I think is the, is the point as, from the architecture of it. But actually, David was Carr was talking about it. Uh, he, uh, who is the late David Carr, who was the media uh, columnist for the New York Times, he was talking about it when he was arguing with the vice people who were mm. sort of talking. If I recall in your movie, page one, he was yelling at them. There was a scene where he's like, well, you know, they were treating war like it was pornography. It was sort of war porn. And he was like, you know, you did you actually find out? Did you actually go? And he was sort of drilling in them in terms of the kind of journalism that sort of led to this, this sort of sloppy journalism. It's totally true. I mean, another great scene from the film is when David's at a debate with Michael Wolff and mm-hmm. he says, you this know— This is a writer who's written— uh, a, a writer who also had a, a website that did a lot of aggregation. Mm-hmm. And I think even in 2010, 2011, there was a concern that quality journalism, that's original reporting with people on the ground getting the facts, um, was going to go away. And, and what David said is, are we going to throw this all up to Facebook and see what they turn up. I I don't think so. (laughs) You know, fast forward eight years and, you know, you have all the Russian Facebook ads um, being revealed and an understanding that Facebook is not uh, a platform in which news um, can be trusted in the same way that it can from institutions that have a, a value set where they are correcting their information. They're not perfect. Yokai Benkler, um, who's at the Berkman Klein Center, is one of the people who weighs in to say that in platforms where people are intentionally, as Brian said, you know, telling you to go down the wrong alley um, and making things up, society and democracy can't survive. And instead, you know, we need to have institutions where there is a value set to correct the record. And even though they're imperfect, try and um, have fact-based conversation. Well, and, go ahead. Well, you both said about the New York Times is really interesting because you think about 10 years ago versus today. I've come full circle with you, Andrew. First, I'm in your film now. We're making a film together. And if you think about 10 years ago versus today, the New York Times is stronger than I would have thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I when I left the New York Times in 2013, I did not think that brand was going to be as strong and thriving and profitable as it is today with so many digital subscribers and, and all of that. But at the same time, we're in this poisoned information environment where there's so much misinformation and disinformation. There's this spectrum where on one end there's this incredibly high quality content available if you want it. But then there's also this swamp of sickness and poison and they both exist on the same in the same space. 
It's like if you want it, you can get the healthiest, organic, local, grass-fed news, right? Right. Or you can just scroll through your feed and get uh, get tracked, get trashed. Why don't, Adam, why don't you talk about the, the role of Facebook in this? You know, I, I talk about Facebook a lot and, and the problems and have been very early to knowing how little they care about what's all, rolling over any of their platforms, not just Facebook, but Google and all the others. Well, I think with Facebook, there's kind of two things that really make it so toxic for the spread of disinformation and misinformation. One is the speed at which it moves. I mean, the second a, a story is published on Facebook, it can spread just like wildfire. I think the other thing about Facebook that makes it dangerous is there just is no sort of gatekeeper, kind of anyone can post anything. And if that story, whether it's true or not, you know, plays on the basic kind of human hungers for, you know, sensational, really just, if it's a fake story, it can be as sensational as you want. Mm -hmm. And that's the type of thing that'll spread quickly. Right. So those two things together just makes fake stories just spread like wildfire on Facebook. All right. So interestingly enough, this is, let me give you an example. Kevin Ruse, who works at the Times, was yeah. tweeting about what the top stories the other day were <laughs> on, I don't know if you saw that tweet. I'm looking for it right now. Um, but he was talking about the idea that in the middle of coronavirus, uh, we had the Fed cutting rates. Uh, we had the Democrat Super Tuesday. Um, here it is. He goes, it's Super Tuesday. Coronavirus fears are spreading. The Fed just announced its biggest race cut since 2008. The top performing story on Facebook is a Fox News post about Hillary Clinton's emails. <laughs> about Hillary Clinton. <laughs> and and, the, and the, rep, the Clinton email story is also 3 and 13 on the top forwarding list uh, posted by Breitbart and Dan Bongino, respectively, an election-related post doesn't appear until 18 or seven slots lower than LED Bibles. You can get a timer for people who spend too long on the toilet. Um, <laughs> so talk about this, uh, Brian. I mean, oh, this was, Kara, I was what like, is there to say? I mean, we just had Kevin on Pivot this week talking about this, <laughs> this idea of, of the top stories and what becomes top. And it's to often some Hillary degree, Clinton it story. is about, you know, human behaviors and interest and psychology that goes back thousands of years about what people are interested in. And sometimes that's going to involve toilets. But on the other hand, Facebook rewards certain kinds of stories and certain kinds of users are, are surfing that site and, and engaging in those kinds of activities more than others. I mean, isn't the subtext of what Kevin keeps pointing out that Facebook seems to be serving an older, more conservative audience yes, than that's, maybe that's it one of used them. to be? Well, that's yeah. one of them. Yeah, that's one of them. But it still serves two billion people and therefore right. a reflection of not pushing people towards news and away from news and towards, you know, Nonsense. It seems like to me that they've, they're taking they're taking um, some well deserved credit for taking the right steps on a few key issues. For, for example, coronavirus. If you Google coronavirus, sorry, if you don't Google, if you if you search coronavirus on the Facebook app, the first thing you'll see is accurate health information from the WHO. They have they have made sure the app surfaces that stuff first. <laughs> but you know, if you go a level deep, level, level deeper, or level deeper, you're going to find some really crazy things on Facebook as well about, about the virus. Right. So they're trying at the front end to show they're doing the right thing uh, at key moments, but the platform as a whole still has these fundamental structural problems. So Am I getting you, that right? Yeah, think? I think so. I, I, I think they don't care. I think actually, I think they actually don't care. I, I mean, I think they say they care, but I don't think they, and I don't think they know what to do about it. But the last three years has been about what? Shaming them into caring, pressuring I'm them trying. into caring. It doesn't, work. it doesn't work? No, it doesn't work. A little bit? Maybe it helps 100% a little bit? 100% not. 100% not. Well, the you stock say that market. very forcefully in the film. Yeah, yeah. Because, because the stock market is doing well in the stock market. And until it doesn't do that, that's when it's going to stop. I love the way Stephen Levy says it, the author of that new book about Facebook. Right. He says, Facebook, you know, 
in the stock market, it's a blue chip uh, stock. In uh, reputationally, it's a it's a penny stock. Right, right. right. And both are true. Mm-hmm. Um, but as long as we keep using it, then reputation doesn't matter so much. All right. So talk about different characters. There's James from Comet Pizza. Who else? Talk about right. more so, of the stories. So to get back to it, you know, the, the whole idea was to humanize the problem because we can talk in a sort of academic way or about the science of how fake news mm-hmm. travels so much. Um, but another person who's had a really um, personal uh, stake in this is Aaron Rich. Mm-hmm. He is the brother of Seth Rich, who was a DNC staffer, mm-hmm. um, who in the summer of 2016 was tragically murdered um, in the Bloomingdale neighborhood of D.C. This murder was taken by various propagandists, and and, and there's evidence that uh, Russian bots also were involved in pushing stories uh, with a conspiracy that Seth Rich was actually murdered by uh, by Hillary Clinton, by the DNC, because Mm -hmm. he was leaking information, the emails, um, to WikiLeaks. Mm -hmm. So it's the perfect sort of stew of, of yeah, a thriller. How did that start? How did that, you know, honestly, the, the, it's fascinating, this murder in Hillary Clinton. You know, if, if Hillary Clinton murdered people, Anthony Weiner would be dead, and he seems not to be. You know what I mean? You think about it. Wow, I've never heard of that way before. Think about it. Like, this is rid- ridiculous. There, so it starts off with this idea that this is a murder. It's probably from Vince Foster. and uh, which, there, which, There's the Clinton body a, count right, is the, 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 the there, there, there was, pre-internet, Vince Foster thing ran around wherever it runs around, but it ran around right-wing sites about that. So that... That was there, and it was there for a long time. It just sort of sat there like a dormant virus. Definitely. Um, well, I a mean, dormant virus. I That's hope Anthony Weiner is dead. Just so you know, just so you're clear. <laughs> he is very much alive. But the point is— The like, difference is that back then, 20 years ago, Sean Hannity wasn't mainstreaming those, that bullshit. Exactly. That's the difference. So that's, that's one of the key things that we look at. So we're looking at these human stories, but then we look at the propaganda pipeline, mm-hmm. which is so basically— talk the, about that, because it's not absolutely. just online sites. It's That's part of the whole And Aaron Rich in, in the film, and Aaron Rich has not really ever spoken about this. <laughs> I thought it was really remarkable, Andrew, that he, that he sat down with you and talked about this experience of what it's been like to have his brother murdered, not know, you know, who the, the perpetrator is, but then see this Russian-driven conspiracy theory go mainstream and go crazy. And, and Aaron says in the film, I didn't even have time to grieve for my brother because I'm having to deal with all these crazy conspiracy theories. And mm-hmm. and that's where the propaganda Absolutely. pipeline is. Well, and to your question of where it started, you can look at 4chan and Reddit and other places where uh, the conspiracy is beginning to thrive. But it's basically when Julian Assange in a uh, an interview um, says that he believes that the people who are leaking to WikiLeaks need to be protected. Mm-hmm. And then he tweets out a reward for information about the death of Seth Rich. And that is— So he was linking them, right? He was completely conflating them because he had also an interest in making it not seem like the Russians had hacked the DNC and, and provided this information, but instead that this populist sort of Bernie supporter, which is the part of the narrative, mm-hmm. had in fact given him the information. Right. But the, the really terrible thing is that we see this story picked up by Fox News. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I think the film really digs into the objective of false news is for it to percolate up to the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Which Andrew Marantz talks about in his book, uh, just mm-hmm. the disinformation book he Absolutely. did. So it starts somewhere lower. Either a tweet or right. on Reddit. It starts in the sort of nether regions of the online space, 4chan, as Kathleen Jameson Hall uh, describes as like the uh, the rest stop of the internet. Um, and then it makes its way to people's Facebook feeds. And there are propagandists. We look at somebody named Jack Berkman, mm-hmm. um, who has uh, become notorious in his collaborations with Jacob Wall, mm-hmm. um, another uh, right-wing— um, Weird faker. 
weird, almost <laughs> performance artist. Right. He is. And, I and feel that's bad for him. Yeah, I mean, it's it, you can feel bad for him, but then also the the intentional. It, yes, it's you've intentional. Never seen, this is like central casting well, of the villains. I, I'm going to date myself, but Donald Segretti. But we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> but I love what Jack Berkman says right. in the film. He says fake, it's a tool of war. He says yeah. fake news is a tool of well, war. Of course it is. And he kind of thinks that if he doesn't use it, others are going to use it anyway. Right. And that's how we get into this mess. Ultimately, what Seth Rich is about is about saying it wasn't Russia. It wasn't Russia that hacked. The email. Which was one of the it's messages. About trying, yeah, it's about trying to let Trump and Russia off the hook. Which That's, continues to this these day. These things are always like really deeply so, rooted we're, into— We're going to get back to get to Russia soon because it was Russia. When we get back with Andrew Rossi, Brian Stelter, and Adam McGill from the new HBO documentary, After Truth, Disinformation, and the Cost of Fake News. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're here with Andrew Rossi, Brian Stelter, and Adam McGill from the new HBO documentary, After Truth, Disinformation and the Cost of Fake News, uh, which is premiering when? when it, Adam, when's it premiering? It's coming out on March 19th on HBO. Uh-huh. And then you were gonna, you're, you'll be premiere, doing different premieres around. I started talking about Russia because I think really a lot of this lies at the heart of— I happen, oddly enough, you may not know this, my area of expertise in college at the Foreign Service School at Georgia was propaganda and what, looking how Russia and China actually use them to control oh, people internally and externally. Um, and in Nazi Germany, same thing. It's the, the uses of propaganda are really riveting how it, how it works. So t- Russia has been a big player in this, although the Iranians have been in, involved. Uh, Americans have taken up the getting good at it kind of stuff. But talk about the Russian angle, because I think one of the things that can use this day is the idea that Russians were not doing this, including propagated by President Trump, who's, I think, the, the chief propagator of this disinformation about the Russians. Absolutely. So I think one of the things that is kind of important to understand when kind of picking apart Russian interference in the 2016 election, which happened in a number of ways. We're talking about, you know, Facebook ads and Facebook groups spreading divisive content and also the sort of very deliberate sort of hacking of the Democratic National Committee and the leaking of emails that then led to further conspiracy theories and were meant to be sort of an October surprise. But one thing to sort of keep in mind is the sort of ultimate goals of Russia. 
their ultimate goal is to sort of destabilize the United States. And to do so, they're playing on the sort of natural divisions that exist in the United States. So it's not a coincidence that a lot of the, you know, Russian bot Facebook ads really targeted these hot button issues that we can't agree on, you know, Black Lives Matter, gun rights, immigrants coming into the country, these issues that are so divisive to so many people. And so if you have that in the back of your mind, you know, it's easier to sort of understand why they're kind of pushing us towards the margins. You know, it's not a coincidence that they were sort of supporting Bernie Sanders in 2016 and Trump. They were trying to push everyone to the far left and the far right and sort of sow these natural kind of divisions in our society. And we see in the film, we start with a case study. So the film is sort of structured as different case studies. And the first one is Jade Helm, Mm -hmm. which was um, a conspiracy about a military exercise taking place in the Southwest United States in 2015. And we look at this as kind of— It starts with the idea that the government is trying to take your guns and you can't defend yourself— and this idea, and listen, the this Obama, is called the, the Obama, Obama government. The Obama yeah, it's government. Distrust but it's, of government. It goes back to the Whiskey Rebellion, and Andrew Hamilton had to put that the one down. The tea, you know, a, a long, long time ago, the idea 100%. that the government is here to take away your. But then abilities. it takes like right. really interesting permutations in this kind of contemporary field because people were thinking that WalMarts were going to be taken over and people were going to be seized and quarantined there. In a Walmart. In Walmarts, in abandoned Walmarts. Which like actually kind of sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> like if I had to be quarantined anywhere, yeah, it's like a fan lot of fiction Walmart. for conspiracists. Yeah. All right. Toys so they, they get put and, in um, Walmart. So so we look at then how in Bastrop County specifically, Judge Paul Poppy, mm-hmm. uh, who calls a town hall meeting, mm-hmm. and you can see in the footage that's, of course, um, uh, captured by Alex Jones in Infowars, mm-hmm. um, the, the people getting so emotional and, and activated. Mm-hmm. And Alex Jones just pushes the button even more, and, and the story spreads— and, you know, later— it, And this is that the military is going to do what? The, the idea is that President Obama is doing this military exercise as a decoy for an effort to actually imprison his opponents, his political opponents. These people <laughs> of these small towns are his political opponents. Exactly. To do what? It's a takeover. President Obama and the federal government are going to take over the United States, and, and this is just the first step. All right. A- that, and then the second step would be— the second step, I don't know. You're I trying guess to apply sort of logic. <laughs> no, I am. I'm just trying. I mean, it's interesting. What, so talk about the idea of people getting upset by it. How, why does that hit at people? Well, I mean, it's fascinating because we go to um, a gun shop mm-hmm. uh, and we talk to some of the customers there. And, you know, ironically, I think a lot of people think this is this is a movie sort of made by coastal elites or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's going to depict people in, in the middle of the country in a certain way. But in fact, the people at the gun shop are incredibly incensed at the fact that these conspiracies have spread. And they talk about how, you know, whether people are believing in lizard people or mm-hmm. vaccines cause autism, mm-hmm. that there are a faction of people um, in their communities who are spreading these these false stories right. and that the majority of them are trying to get at the truth. Mm-hmm. But you have in these forums like the town hall, um, people sort of seizing the discourse. So g- lizard people, that's Hillary Clinton's a lizard, right? That one? <laughs> yes. Right. One of, it was really interesting because when I saw one of those, I remember calling Facebook. I'm like, she's not a lizard. Like this is, I'm pretty certain she's not a lizard. And then I, they're like pretty certain. I'm like, no, he's not a lizard. She's not. And it was really an interesting thing of not taking it down. So let's first talk about why Hillary Clinton seems to be at the font continues. We were just talking, she's the top of email. She's a lizard person. She murders people. What? Why has she become that in terms of 
one of the most successful women in American history, mm-hmm. one of the most prominent Democrats in our uh, in our lifetimes, uh, someone trying to achieve gender equality. She she presses a lot of buttons for a lot of different people uh, on on the right. Full of flaws to um, take advantage of. And, and that point about Clinton and Lizard, I just want to re- reframe it a little bit. What are Hillary Clinton's rights in that situation? Does she have any rights at all? Mm-hmm. I guess she doesn't. Right. Right. She has no rights to be able to to go. To, to well, have, she has attacked Facebook quite and certainly strongly. She's a, and to be clear, public figure, I recognize that public figures have a higher legal bar mm-hmm. in, in lawsuits and things like that. But in the in the making of this film and in watching the interviews with the subjects, especially the victims of fake news, I keep thinking about what are their rights. Mm-hmm. I know that these attackers have the right to lie about them. Right. But what are the rights of the victims? And right now there are none, and I think that's a it's an interesting conversation. I think what what do you get to do if if you're being lied about on the internet? Mm-hmm. And I know millions of people have been the victims of that already, and it's going to keep happening every day. But what are the what are the you know? And clearly these platforms don't think they have responsibilities. So so to let's take those actions. Let's talk about that. The responsibilities of these platforms. What do each of you? Why don't you start? And what do you think their responsibility is? I mean, I definitely think they should be doing more. I think right now the platforms are kind of just sort of stuck in this place where they don't really want to take action on this either because it's too hard or too financially difficult for them or they think their stocks would take a hit. I I think, you know, we have this incredible platform that's just causing so much damage that we're not examining and we need to put more pressure on them. Totally. Well, I mean, Kara, you've written about this even recently in your piece on Clay Christensen, Mm -hmm. you know, this idea that sort of disruption and and move things and uh, move quickly and break things. Um, there's like violence and and sort of destruction at the core of Silicon Valley's effort to um, grow and and make money. And you I know think, their excuses is about software development. I know what they were talking about, but what it's heard <laughs> as is different. That's what I was like. Yeah, I get what you are trying to say. Absolutely. Mm. And and you make the point in the film also that these are all for the or not all for the most part sort of white men. Um, sort of, you know, to use uh, the phrase, the tech bro, who have created these platforms and they didn't think about marginalized people and how they could be so easily victimized through the spread of stories. And I think, you know, one of the big things we talk about is Section 230 mm-hmm. and uh, the 1996 DCC Act. explain what that is. Okay, so this is complicated uh, to me as well, so I'll it's do very my short. best. It's short. It's a short section. What's interesting is that it's based on basically a case in 1996 when Prodigy, one of the first like bulletin boards available online. Prodigy Prodigy was everything. I I, I covered them. I covered them. It was everything Sears knew about technology, everything IBM knew about retail. (laughs) (laughs) It was a a shitty bulletin board. But I didn't know (laughs) that Prodigy is what causes Section 230. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, it was the most lo-fi sort of like, really the idea of the platform being just the tubes, like the, the mechanical. Well, Prodigy inserted itself in the process of comments and and CompuServe did not and so they got sued and so they were held liable and so the idea was don't don't insert yourself. Let anything go, essentially. And so that's you, how we get Section right. 230. Well, and then Section 30 gave them immunity, yeah. It, it created this definition of the tech platforms as just bulletin boards where information is generated by the user and it, there's no curation or there's they're, they're not publishers, so they shouldn't be liable as publishers are. But I think now when you look at the algorithm and the ways in which, you know, Brian, as you were saying, coronavirus is a decision um, for a topic by Facebook to have editorial control um, there are many ways in which the platforms are acting as publishers, and so they should take the responsibility, the corporate responsibility. So how do you look at that? Because Mark Zuckerberg just gave a speech where he said we're somewhere between 
technologist and a publisher or a, a, a telco. He was com- he was saying he was a telco versus a publisher, and he's somewhere in between. And I, it reminded me, and again, I'm dating myself of the old Saturday Night Live skit, where a dessert topping and a floor wax. Like, I, <laughs> do you remember that? Like, it's yeah. still. But all any way you do it, it's delicious. Um, <laughs> what is it from your? If you had to define what it is, so they're trying very hard to put themselves in a place that people are understandable. But I think it's a new kind of publisher is what it is. Yeah, I think the, the, the analogy of the telecommunications companies, you know, let's bring up AT&T, which owns CNN and HBO. When I'm on my AT&T oh, cell that's phone— that's right. You guys work for this phone company. Hey, there the you go. Work for the phone. So when I'm on the, my AT&T phone talking to my wife, that's a private conversation. No one would ever expect to be fact-checking, looking for misinformation on a phone call. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- th- you can apply that idea to Facebook and to me messaging my mom or something on Facebook. You could apply Apply that same rubric. Um, but then I, I go a bunch of steps further. And, and look, in the film, I'm purposely not in the film. That's on purpose. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to make this about CNN or anything. But here's an example for me as a CNN anchor, thinking about disinformation. There's a meme that goes around on Twitter that's really popular, unfortunately really popular. It shows my face, and it says, and it shows a couple other CNN anchors' faces. And it says, why were these men on the Epstein flight logs? And I think that's a really interesting meme. This is Jeffrey. Because it doesn't say I was with Jeffrey. It doesn't say I was with Jeffrey. It doesn't say I'm a pedophile. It just mm-hmm. links me to Jeffrey Epstein. Mm-hmm. How am I supposed to prove that I wasn't on Jeffrey Epstein's plane? Like, mm-hmm. how am I supposed? How do I dis? How do I disprove something so crazy, such a such a crazy lie? And do I have any rights at all against that meme? I guess I don't. Mm-hmm. But I and look, I, I recognize I'm becoming more of a public figure over time. I'm getting attacked more. I get that. I recognize my privilege to be able to fight back against it. But I do wonder: in 20 years, if my daughter sees that meme mm-hmm. and she still knows what it means, like what are what are her rights in that situation? Right. And I'm just fascinated by that. The, we've all just given up. <laughs> so, that everyone's just given up and just accepted that we're going to live in this poisoned, sick. Um, conspiracy-filled so so, world. So what are these? Like, do you have, these do you ever, have you ever have it? I mean, I'm sure, Kara, you get versions of that. I get less you. than you think. I'm sure I'm about to get them, but I get less <laughs> than It's fascinating. I'm not sure why. It doesn't set it off. For, I don't yeah. set people off the, <laughs> quite the same way you do. <laughs> well, or, or it might just be that you know, my fat face is on TV, you know, even more often. You wear the sunglasses on TV, which is smart. Maybe I that's do. what I, I should yeah, do. No, I, I, I'm but, fascinated you know, <laughs> by why I'm There was a tweet um, 10 years ago. Remember the bar Epstein's on the Lower East Side? There was mm-hmm. this great bar called Epstein's, and I used to tweet out my location, uh, to my friends on Twitter. And so that tweet gets picked up 10 years later and repurposed oh, to claim that I was— Isn't that incredible? It is incredible. And, you know, hundreds of people share it and lie and lie and lie. And I just, you know, I guess I could delete it. But I keep thinking about the, the responsibility, of course, of the platforms. What are the rights of the individuals in these in these environments so, where it's so not what, something that's so borderline, what, so but it's what crazy? Are these, what are these the Facebooks and the YouTubes? What are they precisely? Platform There's so much content like. that's not— purely fact-checkable, right? Mm-hmm. There are so many things, and we'll turn it around, take it President Trump. There are crazy things said about President Trump that are—they're not borderline. They're not just opinions. They are, um, they are uh, you know, totally conspiracy theories. What are his rights in, in that situation? And I, I suppose the answer is they, we, they, these people do not have any. Yeah. So, um, but so, I don't know if that's a sustainable model. You know, if we're, if we're 20 years into this revolution— are we going to go through every every year? It's going to get worse. Just going to be more conspiracy theories. Well, Adam, let's get to President Trump. Talk about his role. Is he a character? He's a big character in this. Yes and no. I think you know we do need to recognize that he's put out falsehoods and has had such a role in kind of I think attacking the media. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things we do focus in the film is sort of the way in which he's characterized kind of the media as almost being the public enemy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a super dangerous precedent because the media does have a role in, in depowering the media and not— Well, that's l- the point. 
That is the point. But <laughs> That's the actual it's point. It's distressing. It's a distressing point. It's so bummer. It's such a bummer to think about December 2016 when he first hijacked the term fake news. Because mm-hmm. there was this window of time, this brief window of time in November of 2016 where we actually could have a reality-based conversation about actually fake news. Mm-hmm. And it was led by Craig Silverman and a bunch of others uh, of us popularized the term. And we mm-hmm. were, and then, of course, he just hijacked it. He just completely de—, de um, he redefined the term fake news to mean news he doesn't like. Right. And it's harder to have a conversation now about what we've— Tried well, to people bring up say in this it film. a lot to you, fake news. So we include uh, President Trump really only for that reason, mm-hmm. to, to show how he has made the term fake news meaningless. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's partly because we wanted the film to work as a, as a piece of media literacy and also almost like to debunk some of these conspiracies that we're looking at in the case studies. Mm-hmm. So you have people who, just to see James Alephantis on the screen, to see the interior of the pizza place, to understand the people who work there and how they were harassed and terrorized, that is, um, that's really going to be a cognitive dissonance for them because they've been led to believe in forums is it? that these are, are pedophiles. See, here's the problem. Is it? Those are fake pictures. Those are fake. You know what I mean? It just, right. it, it does, once you get a whole, get taken but it's in. A, a parade of information that really seeps into to their worldview. And I mm-hmm. think... Um, we didn't want to sort of add to that an attack on Donald Trump specifically. Mm-hmm. So what would you call the word now? What, what should, you have fake news in the title of this uh, documentary. What, what is the word? Because disinformation is kind of a confusing word, I think, to people. What, what is the word? False news is, the, is like the term of art that we've mm-hmm. used for the most part. And then I think when we came up with the title, fake news is, is basically like in quotes. So it's, mm-hmm. it's the term that people associate with the idea of, of lies. Right. I find myself saying hoaxes more mm-hmm. often these days. Poison. Hoaxes what, what do you so say? pleasant. Lies. Oh, <laughs> lies. Lies. Yeah. Pernicious lies. Mm-hmm. Vicious lies. Malignant lies. Malevolent lies. You know, something with that. Because hoax, it feels like, oh, I just made you, you know. Tricked get, you. I tricked right, you. Right, right. I put point. your hand in the water and you peed in your bed. Like, <laughs> or whatever. And I made, or I, gave, I made, I called you. That's not, that's a, that's a different, that's a, that's a, I don't know. A prank? That. Prank. That's a prank. <laughs> right. That's exactly what that is. A hoax would be like, I, you know, called a pizza place and ordered, not, not, not Comet Pizza, which by the way, the pizza is excellent at Comet Pizza. Um, uh, they, I called someone and, you know, tried, you know, got Prince Albert McCann, well, yeah. you better let him out. That right, kind but of it's stuff. A, yeah, right. They are lies. Hoax is a soft word. Too soft. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad lies. I've gotten the, the feedback. Lies. The, the, the case that we have in Alabama in the film involves liberals coming up with these lies, trying mm-hmm. to uh, beat the conservative, beat the Republican in the Senate race. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a, it's a good reminder, too, that this, is, this does happen on all sides. However, it also is pretty clear that the, the, more per, the, 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 the bigger amount of more pernicious lying right now is more effective on the right. Well— because you know, here's the theory I have, which I think I've written about, which is that this was a group of people that were left out of the mainstream media for a long, long, long time. Before Fox News, it was pretty much a left-center, center-right kind of media, essentially. That's, it sort of fell in the center, but to, on either side of the left and right. But for damn sure, the people from the right were out. They were left out, and so they didn't have any other avenues. And this was the avenue. It started, obviously, with Fox News, but they were using a lot of these tools very early on, understood the importance of them of bulletin boards and things like that mm. early on because they had no ways to get out their information and this was a way to do it. There's no, it's not a mistake that the that the white supremacists do so well on these boards. It's no, not a mistake that, 
you know, racially appalling things thrive there um, because it's a place where they feel like AOL was an early place for a lot of this stuff. Right. There's a reason why Alex Jones sets up InfoWars <laughs> and starts streaming. The one thing he got right is that this is an information And Glenn war. Beck before that. Mm. And Glenn Beck before that. And radio was another way to do it, obviously, right. and stuff like that. So when we get back, I want to talk about what to do about it. What do we do? We have these stories of all these people. What is the solution to fixing it? If there's a solution, I think, Brian, you think there is, and it's going to become dystopian. But let's talk a little bit about that when we return. We're here with Andrew Rossi, Brian Stelter, and Adam McGill from the HBO documentary After Truth, Disinformation, and the Cost of Fake News. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're here with director Andrew Rossi, co-producer Adam McGill, and executive producer Brian Stelter, a new documentary, After Truth. One of the things you say, talk about, Adam, is the cost of fake news. What is the cost? I mean, I think in a lot of the stories we look at in the film, we are really looking at sort of a, a personal, really human cost. We're looking at, you know, these people's lives who have been really devastated and just hurt, and they've been harassed and targeted by these fake stories. But the cost we're also talking about is a sort of bigger, you know, cost to our democracy. You know, we, we really believe that sort of having truth is is a fundamental sort of ingredient to effective democracy. You know, if we can't have informed discussions, if we can't, you know, even come to agree on the facts, how are we supposed to make, you know, an informed decision at the voting booth? Well, th- th- absolutely. I mean, the the bigger stakes are democracy. There's also the stakes for the individuals. So you have Aaron Rich, for example, um, whose reputation was destroyed by uh, some of these purveyors of, of false stories. And he, with his attorney, Michael Gottlieb, sued um, the Washington Times mm-hmm. um, to get an apology mm-hmm. and, and to have the record uh, set straight. Elizabeth Williams uh, also from the New York Times talks about how— Williamson. Williamson, excuse me, how the Google results, right, for the families in Sandy Hook who are— Sandy Hook's a perfect example of this. They are now in a several legal fights, and, and so are the Parkland kids and things like that. Maybe that will be one of the solutions. Maybe the court, the system, is one of the ways to fight back. So Absolutely. So it's, it's it's setting the record straight. You know, um, she talks about how the the families say if these lies aren't corrected, then the top search result on on Google will be that Sandy Hook was a hoax, right. and that they are um, act crisis actors. So but this it, is the idea that these kids were not killed and these they were actors, that they made this up in absolutely. order to stop taking people's guns away. So that seems to be the that 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 is that is what people like Alex Jones have um have advanced. And so that's also part of um a section of the film that deals with deplatforming mm-hmm. and and you know the cost is also to journalists. Um it, it, their job is made harder by the um 
the assault on on what they do. And we see Oliver Darcy, um, one person who is attacked by Alex Jones and actually led to the deplatforming of Infowars uh, on Facebook. Well, talk about Alex Jones, Brian, because here's someone who's quite adept. Two people are quite adept at using social media and and the new tools of the Internet are Alex Jones and President Trump. Um, uses them really well kind of stuff. Talk about Alex Jones first, because I think one of the things, as vile as he is, he's good at it. Like, <laughs> why is that? What and is Trump, it? of course, was a yeah. guest on Alex Jones' show in 2015. Right. Let's not forget how, how deplorable that was. Uh, the the effect of Alex Jones being deplatformed has really um, dialed back the volume mm-hmm. on his uh, brand. So I, I think it is a, a really interesting example of of how deplatforming can have an effect. You can argue it's a good or bad effect, but it did have an effect on how visible Alex Jones is, how how la- basically how loud his voice is in the national conversation. Now, as someone who's been targeted by Jones, who he said I drink children's blood, and he said I run the banks, he said crazy things like that. And then I, was I believe that's getting, anti-Semitic. I, but I believe it is too. Yes, yeah. it just to be, uh, and then of course you, know, you get the hate mail that shows up at your house afterwards. Um, I had really mixed feelings about this deplatforming thing. I what I would love to know from Facebook is okay if Alex Jones cleans up his act. Let's mm-hmm. say in ten years uh, he's become uh, he's committed his life to public service and he's done a lot of community work. Mm-hmm. Can he get his platform back? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can he get his account back? So you think he should? Have- I well I just wonder what the rules are right? right because we're all dependent on these platforms that are so opaque and uh, you know I know Facebook has talks about the Supreme Court in the works but you know so Alex Jones can he appeal? Can he get it back someday? Can he prove that he's on his best behavior? He's a bad example for this conversation because he's so deplorable. But that's why I have mixed feelings about the choice to deplatform him. Mm-hmm. It has absolutely reduced his volume. But, you know. What, so what, how do you fix a situation if you won't take off the vile Well, behavior? right. If you, it, it, I mean, it, I think what's interesting, when I was right, talking to a lot of right. the Internet companies, all of them, in fact, before Apple is the one that moved, I think, on him first. That's right. Tim Cook um, first. And then they all had to follow really because, oh, follow. those goodies, goodies at Apple did it. <laughs> now we will. But weeks before, I'd had discussions with each one of these companies, and I said, you're taking him off. You know that. And they're like, no, da, da, da. Everyone has the right to say. And I said, I get that, but he's come, he's going. You're going to have to. He's broken your rules already, so you have a good reason to do so, and you got to kind of take him off. And they would argue, argue against it until they did it. Um, and is that because it takes the CEO getting involved or? I think they didn't want to face the facts of what they're responsible for. Yes, they and, were and And it leads to other things. You know, they do their slippery slope argument and everything else is what do you do then? Who do you keep taking off? And that and that involves them in the decision making. But the slope is slippery, is it not? That's ex- it's, it's filthy. It's a filthy, <laughs> it's dirty, a filthy muddy slope. slope. It's a slimy <laughs> slope. But what it is but f- is that it takes them it takes them into the decision making part, which I think Mark Zuckerberg and others have tried not to be part of the except for the fact that they make decisions every day, all the time. And so that's the problem. It's without rules. Without It's just it's haphazard and capricious. And I think that's really the bigger problem. And from Alex Jones, they've deplatformed anti-vaccine activists as mm-hmm. well. Uh, different platforms have made different choices. But, you know, uh, we're in the midst of a, a campaign season. What about these congressional candidates who support QAnon mm-hmm. and swear allegiance to these crazy theories? Um, th- that slope just gets more slippery. So what, do you, what is that? So you, you can't take them off. You can't. You can take them off. You can decide, you know, a restaurant, if someone comes in and vomits on their floor every day, you're like, you're not coming to my restaurant anymore. Or Absolutely. And, and again, this is something that you really articulate so forcefully in the film. The First Amendment argument does not apply to these private companies yeah. and their platforms. Right. And it's just another sort of smokescreen and a, and a 
easy excuse um, that's employed, uh, as you say, capriciously and, and depending on what they think is valuable. So when it's coronavirus, somehow that appeals to their to their Child hearts and minds yeah. or, or pornography. Um, but when it comes to political ads, then it, it you know, the standard is different. So so when you think about that and when, when what they should take off, what do you imagine is a solution for this? I mean, I think part of it is is sort of a shifting of values in Silicon Valley to sort of think about the type of speech that they're prioritizing when we're talking about freedom of speech on the platform. You know, there have been all these cases where we're defending sort of people who are pushing the line, pushing the line, and we're not really fully examining what is the cost to sort of marginalized groups who are attacked every day on these platforms. You know, why aren't we sort of looking, because that ultimately has a detrimental effect on speech. If, you know, you're harassed every day on a platform, you're not going to want to show up as much. And that actually kind of decreases the amount of speech on these platforms. At the same time, a lot of these marginalized groups say, well, this is a place for us to speak, too. And so it's it's difficult. So what do you imagine should happen? To me, it seems like regulation seems the only solution is that we decide from, via our elected officials what we want to tolerate. We make laws all the time about lots of things. And one of the things about the First Amendment is, which I have a people writing me about that. They're like, well, I should say anything I want. I said, actually, you don't have that right. It's Congress. It's your relationship make, with the government. Well, I was like, yes, I was like, Congress, I'm like, no, Facebook can make any law at once. Twitter, it's not Twitter. Twitter shall make no law. Twitter can make any law it wants. So who should be deciding this? Should it be these platforms saying, I don't want this on my, this is my place and I don't want this to happen here. Should it be the government that walks in? Because that's problematic on every level. So how do, who, what is the solution here? That people suddenly become decent again or what? <laughs> that everyone is uh, fully media <laughs> Just, literate uh, and up with the times. The Salem witch trials Congress, are over. Now should we return to? Yeah, you talk about regulation and I think to myself, you know, I'd feel a lot more confident in my lawmakers if they represented the diversity of the country and especially the tech literacy of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would make me pretty nervous to think about a bunch of uh, very tech illiterate. Yeah, yeah, a bunch of all. Luddites. They're not all. I They're not all. They're not right. all. But let's hopefully— So, the, what, so what, what has—I want you to finish up talking. What should happen? So I, I think one of, the, one of the partial solutions to this all-encompassing problem uh, does involve media companies like yours and, and like CNN and like HBO in, in, in efforts to call out— the most egregious, the most despicable of these conspiracy theories and disinformation campaigns. There's been so much great reporting since 2016 about this, and there continues to be to this day. And it does have an impact. You know, we talked earlier about Seth Rich and Aaron Rich and uh, and how Sean Hannity was promoting the Seth Rich craziness back in 2017. Well, you know, there was so much shame put onto Fox News. The Hannity backed down. Um, I've been separately working on a book about Fox News and the Trump age, and my reporting indicates that the Murdochs were involved in getting Sean Hannity to shut the up about Seth Rich. Mm-hmm. You know, so that that pressure campaign can have an impact, mm-hmm. uh, at least around the, the most despicable of these examples. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, I think— So you the know, media. The media is going to be our solution. Well, I said partial. <laughs> I said partial. So who else? Partial solution. What else? Naming and shaming does have an effect is all I'm saying. All right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that because I think that ultimately it's about— uh, humans and individual users of the platforms understanding that they're being manipulated. And the more that they can understand that, how their buttons are being pushed, and have more empathy for others and, and how much hate is is an easily exploited emotion, I think that that will do a lot. So you're saying friends don't let friends drive drunk, friends don't let friends share fake news. Exactly, and and sort of appealing to to humans' good nature as mm-hmm. opposed to. Except here you have an, an obviously addictive. 
product, yeah. obviously, clearly. And that so much is going to come up about exactly what these companies know about how addictive they are. So you have an addictive product that you can't quit. And you have to control yourself. Well, that's where Section 230 comes in and, and sort of removing this special class. They're for, not going to do that. That's very dangerous at the same time. Is mm-hmm. they Let the lawyers mm-hmm. loose. It could wreck the entire industry. Are we moving toward a, a kind of a, a two tribes internet, at least in the United States, where there's a red internet and a blue internet? You know, so I, I wonder if increasingly that's going to be – there's going to be this siloed effect um, where one set is having conversations in one part and the other set's having conversations in the other part. And I, I think that would be a net loss. I don't mm-hmm. think that's a good thing. I think that would be a bad thing. But I worry that we're slipping in that direction with regards to political ads and things like that. All right. Adam, you have to come up with a solution. Come oh, on. yeah. Okay. <laughs> These two are um, wow. useless. <laughs> I mean, I, I do think there there's no— silver bullet for this problem. I, I think, you know, it's going to have to be a lot of things. It's going to be maybe partially the government. It's maybe going to have to be partially the tech platforms themselves. It's, it's partially going to be individuals. It's partly going to be media literacy. You know, the hope is that sort of through some magical combination of all these things, we can shift the public slowly to creating a culture that doesn't value falsehoods and hopefully values the truth. But Kara, you don't really think there'll be a solution, do you? No. Okay. There is no Just making sure. Just making sure. Uh, You know, I think about this. As you grade our tests here. (laughs) I think that it's really hard to think of one that's ideal. There is no ideal thing. I think you're right. It's a combination of things. Media literacy. I think it's uh, the fact that that these platforms are unfettered and have no laws against them. I think there are fines involved. I think when you get to the next generation of people are running these companies, I think they don't want, this is not the business they want to be in, right? And so I, I suspect you've got some real true believers running these companies right now and they're, they'll be gone. And mm-hmm. then, then we'll see. And eventually, you know, sense will prevail at some point or or these things become the other option is the these things become more and more pervasive in our lives they get more we're, we're more surrounded and enveloped by them and we lose ourselves that's really i mean that's that that's really the danger i do think young people do care a great deal more than people think about it i know my children mm. do and i think they understand manipulation uh, i think one of the hard parts is that it's it's addictive and it's manipulative in a way that's that's a mind fuck, really. But that's interesting. I would love to see a study of 20-somethings versus 70-somethings mm-hmm. and how aware they are about being manipulated, how much they care about being manipulated mm-hmm. by disinformation. That's really – that's that might be part of the solution as well. All right. right. Is, We're going to end on that note. Let's be – I'm trying let's to find positivity, positivity. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's really <laughs> – uh, I think it's fixable, but it's not because only 1,000 people are responsible and they all live in Silicon Valley or, or elsewhere. And so – that's why it's possible that you, if you can affect them, that's really where – and making decisions and taking responsibility. I don't know. I'm not sure. But you should watch this documentary, After Truth. Just see, like, look at this, how I did that. Uh, perfect. Perfect. HBO documentary. It premieres March as 19th. Is that correct? 9 um, After Truth, uh, Disinformation and the Cost of Fake News. Andrew Rossi is the director. Adam McGill is the co-producer. And Brian Stelter, who is a – subject of memes on the internet is the executive It's producer. all about me. It's really all about me, Kara. <laughs> I haven't Thankfully, though, memes. the film is not. Oh, good. So I all hope right. people check so it out. I think demand. it's really important to tell these stories, and I really appreciate that you're telling the people's stories and the impact that they have. Thank you for um, participating in it, too. No problem. Thank you for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer is Eric Johnson at Hey Hey ESJ. Andrew, where can people find you online, each of you? Our company's abstract.productions okay. and A underscore Rossi on Twitter. Okay. 
Okay, right you. Uh, people can find me on Twitter. I'm at not the ATV writer. There's an ATV writer named Adam McGill. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and you, Brian. CNN Sunday, 11 a.m. Eastern. Yes, you're all Brian over CNN. On Twitter. All right. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts: Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice, or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.